0: Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And if you'd like, you may follow along in your Pew Bible on page 864. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks John. Well, once again, good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just kind of, can could, could, we, could we see the video one more time? It's just, it's so okay. Here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open, Open the doors and see all the people. You're my peep. Join us for Easter at Ebenezer Church. I love it so much, don't you? It's so good. Yeah. I want to let you know that we're making that available through our Facebook page for anybody. If you, if you're a digital inviter, you have the opportunity to use that uh, that little piece of wonder uh, there as well. Uh, do you, do you ever? Do you ever recognize and catch yourself thinking about something and realize that you have information in your head that you don't need? (laughs) Like for example, I still remember, I still remember my telephone number from when I was four years old. 821-4213. There it is. Now, at least that, like at one point I needed to kind of know that. But there's other information. I don't know if this happens to you, but there's other information in my head that nobody ever needs to know. Like, did did you know that 7% of Americans claim to eat at McDonald's every single day? Also, 7% of Americans claim that they never bathe. I hope it's not the same 7%. Amen? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Uh, did, did Did you know that an alligator can't stick its tongue out? That the gestation period for an elephant is 22 months? Like That's a long time to be pregnant. The largest animal that's ever lived on the planet Earth is alive today, the blue whale. The oldest tree in the world is a giant sequoia right here in the United States, over 5,000 years old. And for a honeybee to make a teaspoon's worth of honey, it has to visit 5,000 flowers to get enough pollen to make one teaspoon full of honey. There are things in my head and probably in yours, and you think to yourself, nobody ever needs to know that information, right? There's some information we have and don't need. There's other information perhaps we need and we don't have. Today we're continuing our series called Believe. This series is designed to help us know what is at the core of following Jesus Christ. What is essential for us to believe? And we started this series by talking about God, God's nature, the way that God is is at work in the context of this world and in relationship with God's self. Last week we talked about the insidious nature of sin and how Jesus responds to sin by saying, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. Today, we're going to have a conversation that I think contains information we're going to need to know. And so I want to invite you to do something. If you're in, in our, in the house here, I want to invite you to grab your bulletin. On the back, there's an opportunity to take notes. If you're following with us online, you can click the notes tab. Uh, I think it's on the right of your screen and there's a, a fillable PDF there that you can take notes in. But I want to issue a challenge. You know, sometimes we come to church and we hear the teaching and we, we walk out and we say, oh, that was interesting or, or that made me feel good or, or whatever. This is not one of those sermons. This isn't a sermon I just want you to hear. This is a sermon I want us to, to, to know. And so here's my challenge to you. I want to invite you not only to take notes this morning, but then throughout the course this week to go back and review those notes, because I think it's not just important for me to know this stuff or for theologians or pastors to know this. It's important for us to know that because our topic this morning is this, what happened on the cross? It's ground zero of our Christian faith. What is it that happened on the cross? And and really, there are two questions here. The first question is, on a cosmic level, like universally for all the world, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? But there's another question inherent within it. What transforms inside of me when I accept Jesus Christ As my Savior, I want to challenge you to to not only take the notes and write this down, but to learn it because there is going to be a day in the context of our lives when someone comes to us and says, Why do you believe in Jesus? And in that moment, they're not asking, Why do you believe in Jesus? What they're really asking is, Why should I believe in Jesus? What are we going to tell them? Well, part of what we might tell them is what we learn here together this morning. So I want to encourage you to take those those notes and, and then take them home with you and refer back to them until you, until you know this information. So the first question before us is, on a cosmic level, what is it that Jesus does on the cross? Now, what you have to know is, throughout Christian history, there's been a lot of discussion and debate and argument at times about what Jesus actually did on the cross. The earliest person to really kind of formulate a theory, and I walked briefly through this about 18 months ago, if this sounds familiar to anybody, but the earliest person to ever formulate a a real theory around what Christ did on the cross was a guy named Origen. Several hundred years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Origen said, you know what the problem is? The problem is that human beings are enslaved to sin. Human beings are enslaved to sin. That when we sinned, we became indentured to evil. That's, that's the problem, says Origen. And then he said, and, and if that is the problem, if, if we were indentured, enslaved to sin and to evil, then what Jesus does when he goes to the cross is Jesus says to evil, I will exchange myself for all of humanity. Sometimes it's called the ransom theory. Jesus says, I will ransom all of them for myself. If the problem is humanity was enslaved to sin, the solution Jesus provides on the cross is Jesus ransoms us. He rescues us from our sin. In, in Mark chapter 10, we hear Jesus say this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what happened on the cross? One answer is, we were enslaved to sin and Jesus rescued us. He ransomed us from our sin. That theory was the predominant theory for about 600 years until a guy named Anselm came along. And Anselm said, no, the problem isn't that humanity is enslaved to sin. The problem is that when we sinned, we broke God's moral law, which incurred God's wrath. Humanity incurred God's wrath. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What we find in the book of Hebrews is, is an endorsement of this idea that when humans sinned, we, we broke God's law and we incurred God's wrath. And so what Jesus does on the cross is he satisfies God's wrath. Sometimes it's called the satisfaction theory. So that theory was in play for about 100 years until a guy by the name of Pierre Abelard comes along. He says, no, 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 Origin was wrong. The problem isn't that humanity was enslaved to sin. And the problem wasn't that humanity incurred God's wrath. Here's the real problem. Humanity knows what is right. We know what we're supposed to do. But we do what is wrong. Humanity does what is wrong. And he said what we need then is someone to be our moral example. This is called the moral exemplar theory. In 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 21 we read this, "For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you should follow in his steps." If the problem is that humanity is enslaved to sin, the answer is Jesus ransoms us from our enslavement. If the problem is that humanity incurred God's wrath, the solution is that Jesus satisfies God's wrath. And if the problem is that we do what was wrong, the solution is Jesus comes as our moral example and teaches us how to do what was right. Now, theologians have had great debate over the years about which one of these theories is correct. Here's my answer. Do you think we still wrestle with sin and evil in our lives? Do we still need rescued? I think so. Do you think that we still break God's law and thereby incur God's wrath? Yeah. Do you think we still need someone to satisfy that? Yeah. Here's the big one. Do you sometimes know what is right and do what is wrong? And nobody, nobody said yes that time. I... I, I I do sometimes know what's right and do what's wrong. And I still need a moral example. My point is to say this. It's not that we need to pick one of these theories. It's that when we look at at this, this broad history of Christian thought, what begins to emerge is the reality, the fullness of what Jesus did on a cosmic level on the cross. So if you want to put it as simplistically as possible, we could say it this way. On the cross, Jesus rescues us from evil, restores our relationship with God, And teaches us how to love sacrificially. On the cross, Jesus rescues us from evil, restores our relationship with God, and teaches us how to love sacrificially. So if someone were to ask you tomorrow, what happened? What's the whole point of the cross? Now you can say, on the cross, Jesus rescues us from evil. On the cross, Jesus restores our relationship with God. And on the cross, Jesus teaches us what sacrificial love looks like. Are you with me so far, church? All right. Because I think it's not only important for us to understand here what happened on the cross. I mean, this is important stuff. I think we need to know this in part because one of the ways we communicate our faith is through intellectual discourse. But I think it's not just important for us to know intellectually what happened. We also need to know, not on a cosmic level, but on a personal level, what happens inside of me when I accept Christ as my Savior. Let me give you a story that illustrates this reality. John Wesley is the founder of this thing we call Methodism. He was born in like 1703, so early, early in the 18th century. He he was a very intelligent man. He grew up and went to Oxford uh, University, where he became uh, a doctor. He, he not not a medical doctor. He got his doctorate actually in early church patristics. So he was he was a, a proficient in the theology of the early church fathers. And he started to teach theology at Oxford. And he, he became ordained as a pastor in the Church of England. And the thing about it is, he was really really bad at being a pastor. Really bad at it. Uh, I told you he tried to be a missionary for a while. I've told you this before. And he, he actually got run out of the United States. He was so bad at being a missionary. Like, Can you imagine running a missionary out of the country? That's how bad he was. He was not very gifted. He had all the knowledge he needed. But for some reason, he wasn't bearing fruit in the context of his life. And then everything changed. On a day, May 24th, 1738, John Wesley went to a small group, a Bible study, Uh, on Aldersgate Street in London. They were studying the book of Romans, and somewhat famously that night, John Wesley records in his diary that about a quarter to nine, as they were studying the Romans, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I came to know that Christ had died, and that He had died for me. Those two little words, for me. Me. When John Wesley left that house on Aldersgate Street that night, he went out, a new man, and he started to work. And do you know that today, today in the world, there are a hundred million Christians who trace their roots back to Wesley's ministry. He was unbelievably fruitful. Why? What changed? There was a transition that took place. All this information John Wesley had in his head made that all-too-difficult 18-inch journey down to his heart. So the question for us is not just, what does Jesus do cosmically for the universe on the cross? The question for us is also, what changes in me when I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and as my Savior? I want to spend a few moments trying to answer that question. And in reality, I want to suggest to you that when I accept Christ as my Savior, actually two things happen at the same time. The first thing that happens is a process called justification. Justification. Now, what does justification mean? Justification means to be made right. I I was wrong, and to be justified, I am made right. You may remember that A number of years ago, I don't know that it's still on the, on the big screen anymore, but if you used to work at all with Microsoft Word, there was a button you could press that was called Justify. And if you press that button, what happened on your paper was that everything lined up. When we are justified, we are brought back into line. And so, one of the things that happens when I accept Christ, one of the things that happens inside of me is that I become justified. What is the nature of that change? That is a relational change. There's a relational change that comes in justification. It's a change in a relationship. What is the nature of that change or the change in that status? Well, in that moment, I go from being an enmity with God to being in friendship with God. In the moment of justification, I switch teams. I was on the other team and now I'm on God's And it happens just like this. Justification is a change in my relationship with God in which I go from being an enemy to being a friend. And and then we ask the question, well, what's my role in this moment of justification? The only thing I can do to be justified by God's grace is accept it. That's it. You may remember on Christmas, I shared a quote with you from a guy by the name of Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich was a great theologian and pastor of the 20th century. And he wrote a sermon once called, You Are Accepted. And what I shared with you on Christmas was this. Paul Tillich wrote that there are moments, dark moments in our lives, when the grace of God will break into our, our lives. And it's as if we hear a voice from God saying, You are accepted. You are accepted. You're accepted by that which is greater than you. And the name of which you do not even know. Do not ask for the name now. Do not intend anything now. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do not, you will do much. Do not expect anything. Do not intend anything. Do not ask for anything. Just accept the fact that you are accepted. That's what I share with you on Christmas. But I want to read you the next part of his sermon. Here's what he says after that. He says if that happens to us, if we accept the fact that we've been accepted, we experience grace. He said after such an experience, we may not be better than before. And we may not believe more than before, but everything is transformed. In that moment, grace conquers sin. And reconciliation bridges the gulf of estrangement. And nothing is demanded of this experience. No religious or moral or intellectual presupposition. Nothing but acceptance. When it comes to being justified, being made right in the eyes of God, I can't do it, you can't do it, God had to do it for us, and the only thing I can do is to accept the fact that I have been accepted. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says it this way, It is by grace we are saved through faith and not of we ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so none of us may boast. How long does it take? It happens in an instant. The moment I accept Christ, the moment I accept Christ, I go from being God's enemy to God's friend. It changes the nature of my relationship in an instant when I accept God's grace. But that's only part of what happens in me when I accept Christ as my Savior. There is a second process that begins in that same moment. And in that same moment of, ju- of justification, a second process begins called regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration means to be rebuilt or reformed, to be made again or made new. And I want to spend just a couple of moments in order to help us understand both of these elements contrasting what regeneration is versus justification. Justification is a relational change. We go from being enemies of God to being friends of God. But regeneration is a real change. Think of it this way. In justification, what happens when I accept Christ is that Christ wraps me in a cloak of his righteousness. I've been out in the wilderness my whole life. I've made mistakes. I've failed. I've had sins in my life. I'm I'm filthy. And Christ puts a brand new clean cloak of righteousness around me. That's what happens in justification. And when God looks at me, God no longer sees my sins. God sees Christ's righteousness. That's justification. But the reality is that in that moment, I still have those old compulsions alive within me. Our sinful desires are still there. Our addictions are still present. And most of us know this. We have felt ourselves fighting this battle before, haven't we? I love the way Paul talks about this battle that happens inside of us. In Romans, he says, The good I want to do, I don't do. And the evil I don't want to do. That evil I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? And then he says, Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Justification is a relational change. It changes the nature of my relationship with God. Regeneration is a real change. It's the process of truly being transformed through the Holy Spirit. God changing who I really am. Philippians 2.13 says it this way, For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work. His good pleasure. What does that mean? It means God's not just at work trying to get me to do good things. God's at work trying to get me to want to do good things. God is changing me from the inside out. In justification, we are transformed from being God's enemy into God's friend. In regeneration, that real change takes place. And what transforms us, what transformation takes place there is that we go from being sinners to being Saints. What is my role in this process? Well, in justification, if you'll remember, all we can do is to accept the fact that we've been accepted. But in regeneration, we play a more active role. Through spiritual disciplines like studying Scripture and coming to worship, through prayer, through participating in small group and in the life of Christian community, through journaling and fasting and baptism and communion and service. As we do those things, God is at work within us creating a new person. That's what... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. But here's the bad news. How long does it take? This process of regeneration, the real change of going from sinners to saints, how long does it take? Our whole lives. It's a lifelong process, church. As long as I draw breath, God is still going to be creating and regenerating me. Okay, so what happens inside of me when I accept Jesus Christ? Two things. First, I am justified. The nature of my relationship with God changes I'm no longer God's enemy. I become God's friend. All I can do is accept it, and it happens in an instant. But at that same instant, God also begins a process of regeneration, a process of real change inside of me, causing me to go from being a sinner to one day being a saint. And I get to play a role in that process through Scripture study and prayer and being in Christian community. That process will take throughout the course of my life. That's important information for us to know. I need to know what Jesus did on the cross. I need to know that on the cross, Jesus rescues us from evil and restores our relationship with God and teaches us how to love sacrificially. I need to know that as a follower of Jesus, but I also need to know what happens in me. One of the things that happens in me is that I accept the fact that I can't fix myself. That Christ had to do it on the cross. But I also recognize that God is at work within me in this moment, helping me to experience a new way of living. A way of life I've never experienced before. That through the power of the Holy Spirit I can actually become more righteous. I can become not a slave to evil, but a conqueror of it. I can go from offending God to glorifying God. I can follow Christ's example of sacrificial love and make a difference in my family, in my school, in my community, in my office, and in this world. Because I am a new creation. Yes, there are some things we need to know. And I don't want you to know this information because there's going to be a quiz before you can leave. There won't be. I want you to know this information because there's going to come a time when you encounter somebody in the context of your life and that person is fed up. And they are at the end of their ropes. They're covered up and bent over by sin. What will we tell them? Will we tell them about a God who gave everything that God had to rescue us and restore us and set for us a good example of love? Will I tell them that Jesus accepted me just the way I was and then helped me become a new man or a new woman? a new creation. You know what I didn't talk about? I didn't talk about the why. What would compel God? After all the many chances we'd been given, what would compel God to give everything God had and endure the cross? You know. It's a desperation It's an unparalleled desire. It's a depth of love unlike anything else in the cosmos. The father wanted to be with his kids and he did everything he could not only to restore his relationship with them but to help them become who they'd always dreamed they could be. To help us become who God always dreamed we could be. And that is what happened on the cross. Would you pray with me? How great is your love, O God, for us? That when we were enslaved to evil, you rescued us. When we ran away, you found a way to bring us home again. And when we make bad decisions, you teach us how to live a more abundant life. That I pray that you would help us to find clarity in our minds and in our hearts about the work that you are doing. that at this very moment we have been justified if we have accepted you as our Savior. That you've placed around us the cloak of your righteousness and when we are beheld by the Father, our Father sees not our sin, but your beauty. (laughs) All we could do is accept that gift. Oh, but at the same moment, At the same moment that you're loving us just as we are, you are dreaming about ways that we could take the step to become who we've always wanted to be. We give you thanks for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit at work in the context of our lives. And God, I want to pray over every soul in this congregation, every person who's watching us online, if they have never accepted you as their Savior, I pray this day would be the day that they accept the fact that they are accepted and let you begin to build that new creation. And if we've been following you for years, help us to be recommitted to the tools that your Holy Spirit will use to reinvent us. Help us to rededicate ourselves to prayer and scripture reading. Help us to place ourselves in the palm of your holy hand and lets you make us into that new creation. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for creating us and recreating us. All of it we see. Through the cross. We pray these things with great thanksgiving. And we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. All of God's people said, Amen.